Well, church, let me start by asking you this morning if you enjoy poetry. Now, if you're like me, you probably struggle to appreciate it at all. In fact, you may actively dislike poetry. If that's the case, the good news is that you're in good company this morning. Because a few years ago, Ben Lerner, who's an American poet and professor, released a book called The Hatred of Poetry. And he grapples with the fact that most modern audiences aren't just apathetic to poetry, they actually and actively despise it. And part of this has to do with what poems used to do and what they seem to do now. And so what he means by that is Lerner argues that poetry was once primarily used to help normal people like you and me to, to have a sense of the transcendent, the metaphysical, the, the divine. But as Western society became more modern and industrialized, in the 1800s especially, it also became less interested in the divine, more interested in the, the earthly and the mechanical. And so poetry stopped focusing on something that was greater than us and started focusing on the greatness in us. Well, here's the problem with that. I said, we're just not that great, are we? I mean, I, I, I like all of us here, and I think we're a great crowd, but we know ourselves better than that. As society became more technologically advanced, it also became more violent and despotic. And as we became more adept in things like good things, like medicine and human rights, we also became less interested overall in the goodness and sacredness of human life. And it's no secret, I'm sure you've heard this statistic before, the 20th century exponentially, was the most violent and debauched of all human history. And the sad reality is when, gosh, folks, when you look at what's going on in the world, the 21st century doesn't promise, or rather doesn't seem like it's on a promising trajectory either. And so our poetry, by and large, often reflects on how badly we failed. Or it has an idea or a vision of us that seems really practically unattainable. So Lerner argues in his book that poetry used to point us to the possibility that our hard and difficult lives could find some sort of purpose or meaning or redemption. But contemporary poetry has now placed the burden on us, flawed human beings, to find our own purpose, to make our own meaning, and ultimately to be our own saviors. And that's a tough pill to swallow. We see, really, the desperation of that. And we wonder, is it possible? So it may come as a surprise to you this morning to find out the linchpin of Paul's letter to the Colossians. The focal point of what he's doing theologically here. He's delivering, not in some theological, systematic handbook, He's delivering it in the form of a poem. But fear not, everybody. We can relax because this poem is purely good news. It's easy to understand and yet it is so beyond us. It's mysterious. And the best news of all is that the subject of this poem is not our own goodness or ingenuity or creativity or whatever. It's the goodness and centrality of Jesus Christ our King and Creator. 
And so up until this point in the letter, Paul has been gushing about how the Colossians have been doing. They have faith in Christ. They love all Christians, all Christians. They have hope in the future because of the resurrection that's been promised to them. But the Colossians aren't doing good by their own power. They're they're not so naive as we were in the 19th and 20th and 21st century to think, well, we've got a lot of technology, so we're just going to be, we're just more civilized and better than everybody else. No, they know that all the goodness in their life is not through their own ingenuity. Instead, it's because God's Spirit has been inspiring and empowering them to live out these lives, these good lives. So now Paul reminds them of the reason they're experiencing this powerful new life together as the church. Why they can even be overflowing with sweetness and forgiveness when they're facing difficulty, when they're actively under attack from their neighbors. And the reason is a person. It's Jesus Christ. For them and in them. And Paul wants not only them, but us, subsequent readers, to remember what he's about to say. He wants us to be able to to hum this truth, to sing it, to chant it, to recite it, to memorize it. And that's why he gives it to us in such a memorable form. Now, I realize that this was written in a different language, and it's now translated into English. And so when we think of poetry, we think of things that rhyme and and things that... um, uh, uh, sound a little bit differently. So it, it's not perhaps a, a poem in that sense to us, but as you read over these words, you can see their beauty, their transcendence, their meaning. And as, as, that's right. This young child understands it. And, and as, as folks, as you, as you read over these truths, I'm convinced you spend time memorizing these things about Jesus, putting it deep within you, you'll find it transforms your life. So let's look at this poem. It comes to us in two major stanzas, verses 15 through 17 and then verses 18 through 20. The first stanza, we we see how Jesus is the creator. And the second, we see how Jesus is the redeemer. And then at the very end here, briefly, we'll talk verses 21 through 23. It's kind of a reflection on what this all means for us. But let's look at this first stanza together, starting in verse 15. Paul reminds us that Jesus is the Creator. He says that He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. So let's break that down. What does that mean? How do we know that Jesus is the Creator from what Paul is saying here? Because He is the image, the mirror reflection of, of the invisible God. Now, as Christians, we believe that God is the Creator. We believe that He is eternal, that He is divine, that He is a Spirit, and He exists beyond this this world that we can see and touch and understand. He he is a, he's a personal being with rationality and desire and willpower and ability to do whatever He wants. And so God created a world that was other than himself. With everything that we can experience with our five senses. He made time and space and matter to fill it. And the most amazing thing of all, the, the Bible describes God's crowning achievement, 
not as a big palace, not as a big, or even something as magnificent as a galaxy. His crowning achievement in creation was to make a reflection of himself. To make male and female, man and woman, to make people as his image bearers. With their own rationality, desires, willpower, and ability to create as he created. So we might ask, well, what does any of this have to do with Jesus? Well, as Christians, here's, here's really the amazing thing. We believe that God is one God, and yet mysteriously, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, there's about a million ways that you can try to illustrate that, and all of them fall short. But the reality is this, this God is so mysterious and so beyond us, because he's one and yet three and three and yet one, and we can't really imagine what that means. But we believe that Jesus Christ is God the Son. And so Jesus is the true and the visible and the tangible and the historical and the human reflection of God in the world. So when you want to know what God the Father is up to and what His, his desire is, when you want to know how God the Spirit moves and works, you look at Jesus and you understand this is what God looks like. This is who God is for us. And so we believe that Jesus of Nazareth, the itinerant rabbi and and, and part-time builder, the son of Mary who lived 2,000 years ago in Galilee, he's also the eternal son of God who along with the Father and the Spirit, before anything existed, created everything we know. The sun, the moon, the stars, the trees, oceans, mountains, the plants, the animals, the people, all the laws of physics and gravity, all that stuff Jesus created. And Paul tells us that Jesus is also the firstborn of creation. But let's be careful here and let's pay attention to what Paul's doing. Because notice what else he says about him throughout the passage. That Jesus is before all things. That he's the head of the body. That he's the beginning. That he's preeminent. That in, and, and in him and through him and for him and to him, all things were created and exist and hold together. In other words, all of that together is supposed to show us that Jesus is supreme and central to all of created reality. Now here's what Paul is not saying when he says Jesus is the firstborn of creation. He doesn't mean that Jesus is a creation himself. We don't believe that, like some of our Mormon friends out there, that Jesus is just God's greatest creation and Satan is his brother and whatever else. I probably should brush up on what Mormons believe. So sorry Mormons if, if I got you wrong there. But We don't believe that Jesus is a created being. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus' status is like the firstborn and that creation is his domain. It's where he rules. And so the firstborn has the authority, has the right to rule over all of what's his. So that's what Paul is saying here, that Jesus is the rightful ruler. He's the rightful king of creation. And so, also, he's the focal point of all creation. 
Everything we see out in the world, everything tells us something about Jesus. All of history and science and culture and art and politics, everything points us to Jesus because everything is about Jesus, ultimately. Verse 16 proves what Paul means here. For everything was created by Jesus in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, even the most powerful things that exist have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. But friends, look around at this world. Look at our nation. The men who sit on thrones, the people that are in boardrooms, the people that have all the, pa- the, the power, do they look like, I mean, do they look good? Do they look like they're reflecting Jesus with what they do and say and how they act? Hardly ever. Dominions are often corrupt. Rulers and authorities are usually more interested in power and in control than they are in God's goodness and grace. So if Jesus is the, is the creator of only good things, and yet we see the world is filled with bad things, then how do, how do we make sense of this? Well, we all know the story of where things went wrong in humanity when our parents, our ancestors, and, and time immemorial decided we want to be our own gods. We want to be like God. We're going to chase our own wisdom and our own will and how it's plunged the world into sin and death and chaos and everything seems to be spiraling and getting worse and worse and worse. This beautiful creation has been ruined by sin and death that we introduced into the world. Well, here's the good news of our passage. Not only is Jesus the Creator that we read about, but in this second stanza starting in verse 18, we see that Jesus is not only the Creator of the good, but He's also the Redeemer and Savior of the bad. And that's very good news for us. And here's the amazing thing. At at kind of the, the middle, I said that This poem is a linchpin of Paul's letter. Well, the linchpin of the linchpin, interestingly, the connector between these two ideas where Jesus does his work is in the church. Creation and redemption, we find an image of that in the church. Jesus is described as the head of the church, which means that not only is he the ruler of the church, but he's also the source of the church. The good that the church can do in the world, that comes from Jesus. And the bad that the church does in the world, the bad that we are, that means that Jesus also is responsible. Not that he's the one that does it, but he's the one that pays for the bad that we've done and that we do. So what does all this mean exactly? Well, many people in our society think churches, you know, are just little buildings here and there that sprinkle the land uh, where, you know, an Arby's could go or something for some people. They'd rather probably see a, a Waffle House than a church. Some people think it's this big, huge institution and that we're, we're all associating with one another. I wish it were more like that in some ways. We're so divisive these days. And that's a whole other sermon. But the church is not a, it's not a building, it's not an institution, It's not 
anything like that. The church, as it's supposed to be, is just a people. It's the Colossians who've left behind their old beliefs, their old way of life that Paul later describes as hostile towards God. They left that behind and have come to worship the Christ. That's what the church is. The church is this little group of folks here in Lilburn, Georgia, at Maranatha Baptist, who have, have left behind their old way of life and have taken up their cross to follow Jesus daily our Creator and our Redeemer. The church is all people anywhere where Jesus Christ is beginning His work of redemption and recreation of the world. That's what the church is. See, the church transcends borders. It transcends time and language and ethnicities and denominations. The church is everyone, absolutely everyone, who loves and follows Jesus because He first loved them. And folks, here's the reality of the church. They are only, the church is only made up of people who are broken and imperfect sinners. So when Paul says Jesus is our head, it means that Jesus is the source of our faith when we're more often than not faithless people. And that He is the goal of life for us. A people who had no meaning in this world before Him. And miraculously, that Jesus has forever chosen to be united with us in all our sin and nastiness and power grabs and abuses and all that stuff. Jesus has chosen to be with us inextricably connected. Not good, moral, perfect people, but broken and sinful and selfish and more often than not, just downright bad folks. The whole reason that Jesus established and builds His church is to gather together sick and dying and miserable sinners like us to be a part of something totally new to leave behind the, 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 the psychotic families that we have and form this new family of God together. Where there are no, there's no hierarchy in this place. Nobody's more precious to God. All of us come together as equal, as sinners redeemed by Jesus. So in fact, I hate to say this folks, but if you claim to be a Christian and you claim to follow Jesus, then you also admit what a sinner you are. You don't come in here because you're a good, polite, well-behaved taxpayer and people should respect you. You come here because you're dying and you're in desperate need of somebody who will love you despite all of your problems, who will save you despite all of your sins, who will forgive you despite all of the nastiness you bring to the table. You admit when you walk in these doors and worship as a part of this church that you're powerless to save yourself. And that if you're honest, you're not most of the time trying to do good or be good. You're just trying to do your own thing. And you're admitting that your own messy, chaotic life is absolutely beyond your ability to do anything about And so when we look at the church, we look at a people that are as bad off as they could be. 
You know, sometimes, my goodness, when people complain about Christians in our culture, I kind of have to agree with them. I've met a lot of Christians in my life, and sometimes the most unpleasant people to be around are Christians. In some sense, that shouldn't surprise us. Jesus came to call sinners. And when we come in here and pretend like we're anything but that, and we pretend to the world like we're just moral exemplars, it's no wonder they can put holes in us so easily. I think often we ought to find our identity and not how we're good and polite moral, upstanding citizens that's going to save the country, but we should find our identity that Jesus would love a mess like us. And he can love you too. I, I, it's, it's the sad reality is that the people who say they're sinners and say they believe in repentance, sometimes evangelical Christians, I believe, would be the last people in our society that would be willing to utter the words, I repent or I'm sorry, or I was wrong. How backwards we've got it, church. How backwards we've got it in recent years. And so we look at the glory of creation. We see the beauty and wonder of the world, even through all of its complications. When we see the leaves are going to start changing colors soon, that crisp, cool wind is going to start blowing around. We're going to hear birds sing their songs. We're, we'll hear and, and see these clear rivers flow. We'll see the, the wonder of those things. And, and we'll think about the wonder of when we eat good food and when we have a good laugh and are satisfied in hard work and cherish the company of family and friends. And we see the goodness of all that. We know that Jesus is the... Is, is the the Christ and the King and the Creator who gives that to us as a good thing. We'll see all that stuff, but then we'll also be reminded when we look at our own lives how all that goodness of creation, all the things that we strive for, all the ideals that we conjure up in our imagination, how all that stuff is shot through with misery and sorrow. We'll think about how governments are corrupt, Markets are unstable. A pandemic is raging everywhere. Anxiety is overwhelming us. Our children or grandchildren resent us. Our spouses betray us. Our pets go missing. Our houses burn down. Our money gets stolen. And to top it all off, eventually we all die. The goodness of this creation, the, the sublime that we've been able to taste, just get a glimmer of it, all of that is marred by the curse of sin in our world. Everything in this world that was meant to be beautiful and pure and perfect is now warped and, and distorted. And we're the worst of it all. We're the ones that made it this way. And when we choose our own selfish ends instead of choosing to selflessly love God and one another, we see that our world continues to to roll over us, continues to be an absolute chaos free-for-all, a dog-eat-dog, merciless, awful world. And so the only solution is what Paul is singing about this morning, that God the Son who created us for Himself, created everything, also became 
a creation for us. Rather, He came into creation for us, I should say. He stepped out of the perfect glory of eternity and stepped into the fractured shame of our world. And He healed us and He cast out our demons. He forgave us and He even, for goodness sake, ate and drank with us. And we crucified Him for it. God came to be with us, to help us, and we killed Him. But God's love was greater than our hatred. Because the firstborn over all creation, Paul says in the second stanza, is also the firstborn from the dead. So that He might come to have first place in everything. So, just as Jesus is King of creation, so is He King of the re-creation, the new creation. Because sin may cause death, but through His own death, He causes resurrection and new life for all that are in Him. And Christian, here's just the flabbergasting part. He isn't ashamed of His broken creation either. Verse 19 tells us that in Jesus, the fullness of God, His holiness, His righteousness, His mercy, His grace, His eternality, His infinitude, and, and Jesus, the fullness of God, was pleased and delighted to live. God's not ashamed of what He did in Jesus for us. He's not ashamed to call us brothers, the writer of Hebrews tell us. Brothers and sisters. Although we're ashamed of ourselves sometimes. Ashamed of each other. He's not ashamed of us. And just as through Jesus all things were made, so in Jesus all things will be remade. And everything will be reconciled to Him, whether spiritual or physical. By dying on the cross, Jesus mysteriously, in a way that we could never imagine, absorbed the very power and stronghold of evil in His own body and soul. Through Jesus and His shed blood and His cursed death, He has released a wave of peace and life that will eventually swallow up this entire planet. Now that's a pretty powerful poem, I think. Maybe it's not used to the iambic pentameter or whatever, you know, we're not, it's not what we're used to hearing in, in college courses or whatever. But as we face another week of being imperfect human beings in a, in a quickly crumbling world, I invite you this week, church, to return to this poem. Maybe make it part of your prayer life for a week, I don't know. Read over it, memorize it, recite it, remember it, and above all, know the truth of this poem for you. Jesus made you because He loves you. That's the first part of the poem. And even when you reject Him and want nothing to do with Him, here comes the real clincher. Jesus saved you also because He loves you. He made you and gave you everything and you rebelled against Him. And when He could have said scrapping humanity, starting over. No, he says, I'm going to lower myself to their level and be subject to even death 
because I love them and will save them. That's who God is for you. British pastor and New Testament commentator Tom Wright says that after this poem, there's three little verses that help us as the church know exactly where we now stand in the, in the enormous and cosmic map of God's salvation plan. So let's look at these last three verses as we wind down this morning. You know, here Paul is talking mainly in Colossae, it's believed, to a Gentile audience. And this morning, I, I think this letter, as I look out, I, I think most of us probably have a Gentile background. And while it's true that we were once alienated and estranged from God, that God came to the ancient people of Israel and decided, I'm going to work through this people and be a light to the nations. While we were alienated and estranged, estranged from God, when our ancestors, wherever they may have been, in Europe or South America or Asia or Africa, wherever they might have been, when our ancestors had wanted nothing to do with God and were just only interested in being pagans. Nevertheless, God had a plan all along for all of us to become a part of His people to be grafted into what he began to do through the people of Israel. As sinful as they were, too. To be a part of God's family through Jesus. See, Paul talks about how we were hostile, how we were estranged, how we were far off. And if we're honest, folks, we look at our ancestors, we looked at how they, you know, we laugh as modern people. Oh, I can't believe anybody would ever bow down and worship idols of stone and wood. How, how primitive, how pedestrian. And here we are worshiping idols of glass and silicon. Like we're any different from them. But even when we were wrapped up in our own world, our own selfishness, God was working towards us in Jesus. When we were mentally and socially hostile, not only to Him, but to everybody around us. When we were physically and politically and racially violent, even when we were spiritually just evil, that is when God was coming towards us in Jesus. When we were as rotten as rotten can be. He brought us out of the cold and dark of sin into the light and life of His Son, Jesus Christ. And He has brought us now, (laughs) as pathetic and pitiful as we are, into full reconciliation with God the Father. Which is why we can say with Jesus, our Father who art in heaven. Folks, we were all once far off from God. But now in Christ, we have been brought inside the life and the love of God. And the shift that takes place here between verses 21 and And 22 is that. We were once a sin-filled and a hopeless outsider. Some of us, again, because we weren't Jewish, even ethnically so. But God has acted on our behalf in Jesus to make us a justified and hope-filled insider. Not because of us! See, this is where we get things wrong. We think because... We're nice people and we live in a, in a, uh, this part of the world 
We think we're better than other people. That has nothing to do with why we can stand before God. It's because Jesus, who was just, also justified us by His cross. That's the only reason we have any purchase with the Lord. And so now Jesus is free to present us boldly back to His own Father. As three things Paul mentions here. As holy, as faultless, and as blameless. Can you imagine anybody saying that sincerely of a bunch of evangelical Christians? That they're holy and faultless and blameless. That doesn't describe me. But when God looks at Jesus, that's what He sees connected to us. Not because of anything in us, but because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Christians are a holy people. Not because we're always good, or often not, but because we have been set apart from the prince of this dying world and all his schemes and machinations. We've been set apart from that and into the king of glory. Christians are faultless, not because we're without fault, but because, or that we're perfectly loving or faithful or hopeful or anything like that, but because Jesus is our redeemer and he's the one that's perfectly loving and faithful and hopeful for all of us. And Christians are blameless. Not because they've never done any bad things. Don't even get me started on the bad things I know we're doing. But because Jesus has paid the ransom for our blame by succumbing to the penalty for sin. Succumbing to death and then conquering it by His resurrection. This is why Paul tells us we must continue on in our faith. Not that we have to achieve our own salvation, but to reveal that God is working out a salvation in the first place, even for people like us. Friends, this is the gospel Paul proclaims in a poem. And as you see here at the end of, of, of this portion of Scripture, this is the gospel he's willing to suffer prison chains for. It tells us that because Jesus is our Creator and our Redeemer, no matter what kind of baggage we bring to Him, He says, you belong to Me now. No matter what you bring to the Lord, I pay for it, I forgive it, and you belong to Me. No qualifications. It doesn't matter on your attitude. It doesn't matter about your doctrines. It doesn't matter about your actions. You're going to get all that stuff horribly wrong throughout your life. It matters because Jesus has done this for you. And we belong to God now because of it. When life beats us up, when the future is dark, and we're not the people that we wish we were, because of Jesus, our Creator and our Redeemer, we can now live as a people of His faith, of His love, and with His hope. Let's pray. Lord, help us to hear and read and mark and learn and inwardly digest these beautiful truths for us. Through Christ our King, we are created and we are redeemed. And now, mysteriously, when we were hostile and far off, even now, Lord, we find belonging. So help us to trust in Him and Him alone. For it's in Jesus' name 
we now ask and pray all these things. Amen.